So whether the reader of the Bible is a devoted Christ follower, a newbie to faith, maybe they're a skeptic or someone who simply is ambivalent to the whole idea, the Bible is a collection of books and letters that happens in real life, in a real world, in our world. And that's what Paul's dealing with with the Corinthian church. It's real life mess. That church was a mess. And one of the big issues that Paul had to deal with was that the church was very, um, had very little respect for Paul as their leader. They, they really didn't like him. They didn't like who he was. And, and they, they believed that they were entitled to a certain kind of a leader. And Paul doesn't quite measure up to the, the leader that they're looking for, the one that they desire. They feel that the world should spin on its axis for their desires, preferences, and tastes. They deserve a different situation than the one they're living in. And what they want from Paul is that he make a wholesale change to his personality, style of leadership, and his ministry methods. And they want Paul um, to be the kind of leader that they've created in their mind so that they will have a leader who is exactly what will fit within the upper crust of their society. They want him to be somebody he's not. And so in 1 Corinthians, in the, the, the ninth chapter, it zeroes in on the sense of entitlement and deals with it in a way that also speaks to the entitlement issues that we've created in our own world. Now, this present era of young people or young adults has been dubbed the age of entitlement. Tim Urban of the Huffington Post has invented a new term for the yuppies in the Generation Y age group, and which is anybody that's born between 1980 and 2000. They're in this group. They're also known as Millennial Generation. And Urban has named them Gen Y um, protagonists and special yuppies, or gypsies for short. Now, Urban claims that a gypsy is a unique brand of yuppie who thinks they are the main character of a very special story. Gypsies have a sense of optimism and unbounded possibilities. They were told by their parents that they could be whatever they wanted to be, which instilled this special protagonist identity deep within them. As a result, as a result each individual gypsy thinks that he is destined for something better than everyone else around him. Gypsies consider a great career an obvious given for someone as exceptional as they are. Now, the people that are snickering are the people that are older than the gypsies. The gypsies are going like, I don't like that. That kind of hurts. That you're being kind of mean. Well, it's not your fault. You little gypsies. <laughs> it's your parents' fault. Because they've raised you to be this way. Alright? But I also want you to know that on the whole thing of um, being entitled, you're not the only ones. It came from somewhere else. It came from back up the old family tree. I think that dealing with entitlement has been an issue ever since Adam and Eve have been created. 
People have felt they're entitled to something. And so what we've done is we've just taken this, this thing called being entitled and we've really developed it well within my kids' generation. I mean, you guys are experts at it. Not all of you. Now, listen, I'm not painting everybody with one broad stroke, okay? So um, don't get all huffy and puffy yet. Wait about 40 minutes, and then you can get huffy, all right? Um, When people view themselves as the um, protagonist in their own special life narrative, they end up running on a sense of entitlement. And here's what it sounds like. Well, of course I'm supposed to get into that school. This is my story after all. Of course my hard work pays off in the end. Of course I get the promotion. Of course I get the girl. I get the home. I get the picturesque family. I get the kids who end up being even more self-absorbed and narcissistic than I am. Of course, this is my story. The trouble comes when the bubble pops. And the bubble always pops. So this is kind of what Paul's dealing with in this chapter we're looking at. And we're in the ninth chapter. So we're going to take a look at what it says in verses 1 through 3 to begin with. It says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. That's where we're going to stick right here to begin with. We're going to go to verse 3 because this is my defense to those who are going to examine me. In the original language, what it really talks about is it carries the weight of a legal terminology. Paul's on trial. He's been examined. He's being backed into a corner. Now he has to defend himself. And, And here's the crazy thing is we all put people on trial the same kind of way. We... We don't like it when people don't fit into our special life narrative. And so we examine them and we scrutinize them with surgical precision. We pour over every email they send. We read every, every word into every line. With every text message, there's a bomb threat that's about to go off. Every personal encounter is tense, awkward, and even a forced smile. And so why do we do that? It's because we've put them on trial for not fitting into our own story. You're not fitting into my story. Therefore, you're not giving me what I want. Therefore, now I'm going to scrutinize everything you do. Every word you say, everything you, every look you give, everything is going to be scrutinized now because I am going to deal with you in my mind the way I think you should be dealt with. And so the process is used kind of to filter those out who don't fit in with the special life narrative. Paul answers the Corinthians through a series of questions. In verses 1 and 2, he says, Am I not free? As we will see, um, they are attacking his ministry methods. Am I not an apostle? They're attacking his vocation and calling. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Now they're attacking the accuracy of his word and grounds for his ministry. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? They are now on their way to denying the instrumental role that Paul's played in bringing them the good news of Christ. So basically, they've written a letter to him, just in case you didn't know, why why is he answering these 
putting these questions out there. Why is he dealing with this? Is because they sent a letter to him and now he's responding to it and he's answering the questions as they've put him on trial and they're, they're trying to deal with him. And here's what they're after. They feel they are entitled to a particular kind of leader and they are entitled to control the situation in order to get the kind of leader they want. What they want is a strong, articulate, impressive, charismatic, culturally acceptable leader. That's what they want. The problem is, that's not Paul. I mean, if you know anything about Paul, if you were to see Paul, he's not an impressive man. He's short. Uh, You know, he's bald. He's probably a little bit pudgy. He doesn't beat around the bush. He comes straight at all the issues. and what, So it's just not what they want. They're looking for someone who can go toe-to-toe with the philosophers in town. Someone with charisma, with verbal swagger to, to speak to the popular philosophers who are recently coming through town. Paul had none of these things, and their message to Paul was basically ship up or shape out. Well, Paul was over it. He's going like, all right, so here's what we're going to do. And so here's one of the things that we probably really don't understand because of the, the cultural distance and the, the cultural difference. The church was upset with Paul because he wouldn't take their money. You guys are going like, what? We don't know any pastors like that. Neither do I. Okay. And, and, and that it's because the, in this culture, this letter was written, and, and what they were dealing with was having to, to deal with a distinct, strong, popular, charismatic orator of philosophy. That's, that's who you were in Paul's culture. So... In the Corinthian church. So what you would do is you would attach yourself or a group of people to one of these really strong orators and philosophers so that they are well known. You're well known because he's well known. But the twist comes in the whole thing is is that this group of people who are hanging around this philosopher who is so smart and brilliant and can and talk about anything on any level, these people that are hanging around with him are actually paying him money to do this for them. And so what happens is, is though, here's this leader who's leading, but the, the twist in it, it is, is that he's in debt to these people because they're the ones that are providing his livelihood. So now it's a part of control. So they're controlling this guy that's so popular and so uh, charismatic and all the rest of that stuff, they're actually controlling him with the money. And that's what they were trying to do with Paul. Paul's going like, hey, I'm not having anything to do with that. And it really ticked them off because they can't. Con- you can't control somebody who doesn't care about money. Can't do it. And so um, they were kind of thinking if we can get Paul to come along with us, it's going to be a win-win for us because now we can control Paul we can get him to change his personality, his leadership style, we can, his ministry methods. We can get him to do all the stuff we want him to do. But he's going, this is going to be a lose-lose for you because I'm not taking your money. Therefore, you have no control over me. Therefore, you guys are going to listen to what God has to say. 
And, and they were kind of only left with one option in their entitlement. And that option was to manipulate the situation and filter Paul out of their lives. Now, listen, our current cultural setting in the church and outside of the church, we're no strangers to this kind of entitlement. We think things like this. Of course my business should make me lots of money. It's my business. Of course I deserve a raise. Of course we deserve the respect of the community. Of course we deserve a spouse that acts this way and doesn't act that way, especially in public. Of course we deserve attention and affection and love and a sense of meaning and purpose. Of course we deserve to get tons of likes on our Instagrams. This is what the world owes us. Doesn't everyone know, everybody know that this is my special life narrative? It's all about me. And, and, and when we take a look at this, this special life narrative kind of thing and this entitlement, we kind of get the idea that it's really not that bad of a deal. I mean, we all know people who feel like they're entitled and you just kind of have to put up with them, right? You just kind of act as if it's not really a big deal, even though in their mind the whole earth world solar system revolves around them. But the problem is that there are three dangers associated with entitlement. The first one is it distorts our perception. An inflated view of self puts us in a position of deserving. I deserve this. And it puts everyone else in our debt. You owe me this. So it distorts our perception. Second, Entitlement impairs our ability to receive gifts. The Corinthians, just like us, received the greatest gift that they could ever receive, and that was the grace of of Jesus Christ. They received grace. They didn't get the punishment that they deserved. They got God's grace and mercy instead. But they, they had a hard time really understanding what it was like to step into that forgiveness. They, they understood it intellectually, but in, in their hearts, they couldn't really handle the whole idea about forgiveness, much like us. We have a hard time forgiving. We, we go like, yeah, I'm going to forgive that, that person, but we hold on to whatever the event is, like a, a pit bull with a bone. We're not going to let it go. Now, my son Tyson has a, a little... Pitbull kind of puppy. He's still a puppy, right? And this thing's like a foot shorter than uh, our dog Max. And, and he probably 30, 40 pounds lighter than Max. But he doesn't know that he's little. Because in his mind, he's as big as anything. And he'll grab onto something like, well, for instance... Tyson's other dogs, Milo. Um, Raja will grab onto Milo's lip and not let go. It is just the funniest thing you've ever seen, this little dog hanging onto a lip. And that little dog, that little Raja, he just thinks that he is the king of everything. And once he gets a hold of something, he will not let it go. It's even better if somebody else wants it where he has to battle for it. But that's what happens to us when we talk about forgiveness because we say, yeah, I forgive that person, but we, 
We hang on to that issue and we won't let it go. But that's not the forgiveness that God's offered to us. I want you to understand this. The Bible tells us that we are to forgive just as we have been forgiven by God through Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That means that like in Romans 8, 1, it says there's no condemnation. That means that our sin is never going to be brought up and held against us ever again. It's not that God forgets it. He chooses not to use it against us. And so what he's saying is, right here, when, when we don't understand this whole thing, we, we let this entitlement impair our ability to receive gift. We receive this gift of forgiveness, but the way we know we haven't really stepped into receiving it fully is because we never dispense it to anybody else. We don't dispense the grace of Jesus to anybody else. We hang on to it and we don't give it away. And what that really means is that you, when you receive these gifts, these gifts aren't the ones that are meant to be kept in our closet. God gave them to us so that we could give them to other people. And entitlement keeps us from giving. Giving the most important things that God has given to us. It, it, it really shows our incapability of experiencing or expressing gratitude. The third thing, entitlement turns us against the world and against the ones that we love. In our story, the very people who are willing to come alongside of us and step into our mess are the very people that become the villains in our life. We all have friends. We all have loved ones who when they look at what's going on in our life and the mess that we're making of our life, everybody else is bailing on them, running out. But these are the folks that when everybody's running out of the house when it's on fire, they're walking into rescue. They're walking into your mess. They're walking in to help you out. And they walk in and what do you do? You turn on them and they become the villain. And when they become the villain, then you become the victim because they're the villain. And then all of a sudden, you want to try to become the hero of the whole thing. And you want to put the villain in its place and rescue the, the victim yourself. The problem is, you're probably the villain and they're the victim. And the only hero in this narrative is Jesus. He's the only one that can rescue. He's the only one that can save. He's the only one that can pull us up and give us a breath of new life to live life differently. And so when we get, when we get caught up into our entitlements and our rights, what we've done is we've written our own script for our lives. And if you don't follow the script that I've given to you, then I am going to work you out of my life. I'm going to, I'm going to trial you out. I am going to push you out because I can find someone else to take your place in my script. So you better stay on script and you better stick to it and you better do what I want you to do. That's what we do with each other. You know what the really sad part is? We do exactly the same thing to God. We've, we've created a narrative of what God's supposed to look like in our life. And when you read the Bible, God's nothing like what we've, dis, we've scripted him to be. God is so totally different than what we've scripted him to be that we need to take a step back and we need to say, all right, I need to start with a fresh piece of paper and have a different script.
Amen? Well, so this relationship that the Corinthian church um, has with Paul, they're trying to force him into this, this new scripted relationship. But he's not going to follow their script. He's just not going to have anything to do with it. So what Paul does is he offers a defense. He cuts through the Corinthian sense of entitlement by appealing to the substance of entitlement. And and what he does is in in verses 4 through 14, he lays out his defense because he's kind of like on trial now. So he's going to lay out his defense. And so let's look at um, verses 4 through 7. Do we have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that's Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Now, Paul's really coming at him. He's, he's not going to beat around the bush. He's a, he'll, he'll come straight at him. And so here's what he's kind of saying. He's, so you want to talk about entitlements. You want to talk about rights. You want to talk about what someone deserves. Okay, so let's get at it. And so the first thing he says with you, he says, I agree. I agree with you 100%. I have every right to take your money. In fact, let me develop your argument for you. And he takes these verses here in verse 7 and, and he's, he's not only talking about the right that he has his money, but he appeals to the ordinary practice of it. Soldiers don't serve at their own expenses. Um, vine dressers don't refrain from eating the grapes and drinking the wine. And shepherds don't have to pay for the milk produced by their own flock. In the same way, Paul regarded the church, he guarded the church like a soldier. He tended it like a vineyard. He cared for it like a shepherd and had every right to make his living as a minister. It was the ordinary practice almost demanded that he do it. The second thing is in verses 8 and 9, Paul gives them the scriptural precedence for it. He says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox. Don't call me an ox. When it treads out the grain, is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So basically what he's doing, he's going back to the Old Testament and he's reminding them about the law of God that says that the laborers, even non-human laborers, have a right to deserve their sustenance from their work. He's going like the Bible teaches that the laborer has, has his rights to, to partake of whatever he's participating in. And so he's, he's laying out his argument for him. And then the next part of his argument, in verses 11 and 12, Paul uses the common sense argument which probably worked better for him than it does for us because common sense isn't so common anymore. Here's what it says in verses 11 and 12a. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? 
If others share the rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So he's really coming back and he's going like, hey, this just makes plain old common sense because let's just deal with it from a worldly perspective. And, and what the world says is that if you work, if you put your time in, you get paid. And I agree with you. I should be able to take your money because now what Paul's doing, he's developed his defense over this of ordinary um, practice, spiritual precedence, and common sense. And now he takes them to the practice of the Old Testament, and that is religious customs, 12b through 14. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure everything rather uh, rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, here's the really great thing, because we could be saying, well, you know what? He's dealing with the Corinthians, and there may not be very many Jews who are participating in this church, although we know that there were some Judaizers in there because they wanted to deal with some other issues earlier on that we saw. But he's also got all these guys who have come out of pagan worship. And it's not a foreign concept to these guys who, whether they were um, coming from an Old Testament standpoint or from a pagan practice, they all went to the temple. They saw people serving in the temple. They saw priests serving in the temple. They were all taken care of by what took place in the temple. And so what he's appealing to them is, is on this whole religious idea and card that he's throwing at them. He's, he's really saying that uh, priests make their living by being priests. But in verse 14, now Paul throws the big punch. He's going to come at them and he's going to do what every good pastor should do. He plays the Jesus card. Because how can you argue with Jesus, Right? doesn't matter who you are. If you're in church and somebody goes, well, Jesus said, you go like, "Mm, done, I'm finished, I have nothing else to say. And if you try to say something, it's like, how do you argue with God? Because if you remember Ananias and Sapphira, you wouldn't do any of that stuff. And so I think Paul probably had Matthew 10 in mind. Because that's when Jesus, because here's what it says in, in verse 14, we already read it. It says that the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so what I think he's, he's got in mind is when Jesus had told his, his original 12 disciples to go out and take the gospel, the good news, to all these different places, he said, don't take any provisions along for yourselves. Don't pack gold and silver. Don't take any of this other stuff. Just go and proclaim, proclaim the gospel, the good news, to those around you. Because when you do that, the gospel in its presentation is going to take care of all of your needs. So here's what Paul's done in his defense. He, he's laid out the defense that he has the right to take their money from the standpoint of ordinary practice, uh, scriptural precedents, common sense, religious customs, and the Jesus card. And so there really is substance and reality to entitlement. As human beings, we have the basic inalienable rights and society can only function when we abide by them. We deserve to not be enslaved. We deserve not to be lied to. We deserve not to be cheated. We deserve to get paid for a decent wage for the work we do. 
But before we get too excited about all the entitlements we think we have coming to us, we have to recognize that this knife cuts both ways. People deserve to be punished for lying, for cheating. They deserve to be fired when they get paid for work they didn't do. In other words, rights and entitlements feel safe because it offers us us balanced scales. But it also feels dangerous because it offers us balanced scales. You can't have one without the other. It goes both on both sides. You take one away, everything's going to be out of balance. You've you got to keep everything in balance. And, and so the economy of entitlement only works if the scales are kept perfectly in balance. And if we take the principle of entitlement to its natural end, see it all the way through, balance every scale, use every right we have, then we will need to punish every wrong. On one angle, that sounds like justice. But from another perspective, it sounds like prison. And so we live according to the realities of entitlement. We find ourselves handcuffed by our own world view. It seems to me like our rights of entitlement, rights and entitlements have gotten us into quite a bit of a bind. And the question we need to ask ourselves, is there any way to break free where we can love others when they are unlovable? Where others can love us when we're unlovable? Where we can give to others when they don't deserve to receive? And we can receive when we don't deserve to get it. Where we can forgive the people who trample on our rights And others can forgive us as we trample on their rights. Is there any way to get out of that? Well, it seems like Paul has found a way out, that he has broken out of the entitlement and rights mold and found how to be free. And we find that in verses 15 through 18. And here's what it says. But I have made no use of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity, it is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? What is my that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. Now, this whole um, little spiel that Paul has gone through up to this point, it's not been an underhanded way to try and get the church to finally pony up and pay what they owe him. As a matter of fact, he says he would rather die than take their money. He really would. That's what Paul said. That's not what I'm saying. That's what Paul says about himself. Okay? Let's just keep some things really clear here. And, but he's, he's got this whole great responsibility. His boasting doesn't come from the money he makes for the work that he does. It comes because he has been given and entrusted 
this thing called the gospel and he's to be a good steward of it by the way that Jesus has given him to dispense it to other people. We've been called to dispense God's word. We've called to be, to be the dispenser of all these things. And, and so what Paul has found, he's found a new paradigm where he is no longer at the center of his own solar system. At one point he was because he used to, you know, he was a Jew of all Jews. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was a, a smart Pharisee kind of guy. I mean, he had the pedigree of pedigrees when it came to, to Jews. I mean, he was in the upper echelon. And he's saying, all that entitlement stuff, you know what it does for you? Nothing. It leaves you empty and it leaves you without any hope. And so he's going like, I've got a, a new way of looking at it. I've got a new paradigm. And he has set aside his special life narrative and all the demands that have come with it. And he's taken up a new paradigm where someone else is at the center of his solar system. The mystery of Paul's freedom is that he has experienced something that he wants all of us to experience. And that experience is that the most entitled person that ever walked on the planet of this earth gave up his rights. And when he did that, and he went to the cross and he died, it was he was cleaning the pages of entitlement and rights. And the way that we know that that all came to fruition is because on the resurrection day, he gave us a whole new perspective, a whole new paradigm, gave us a whole new way to live our lives outside of what we think we're entitled to and our rights. Because what happens now is that all of a sudden we realize that we are not the, the ones writing our own script. That it was God writing the script the whole time and we just thought we were doing our own thing. And what God has done is he's taken a script and he has written Jesus right smack dab in the middle of our script. And he says, live by this new paradigm. Forget about your rights. Forget about being entitled. Come and live in freedom. Because that's what happens when we give up our rights and our entitlement. Now we're starting to say, I'm going to live free. I am going to be a new person. Because here's what's happened. We've been deluded, duped, deceived into thinking that we write our own narrative life. But the truth is that the author of it is God himself. And, and he's... He's, he's not keeping score. We keep score. He, he's giving us a leg up and all we could do is give ourselves a push down. We think that we've made ourselves desirable to God when God is the one that made us desirable to himself. And he accepts us just the way we are. We don't have to try to earn anything. We don't have to demand anything from God. Uh, by the way, have you ever tried to demand something from God? I, I, don't, I don't know how it's worked out for you, but instead of driving a Corvette, I'm driving a 1989 Toyota pickup. And what Jesus says in all of this is that the gig is up. None of those things matter. We can be free because he paid for our freedom. 
God gave us this picture of what it's supposed to look like for us. It's a word picture, and it comes out of Isaiah 55, and it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in the rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Hey, this, this is a picture of what Jesus does for our soul. This is a picture of our soul. Our souls are longing. They're thirsty. They're parched. Where our, our spirit is, is hungry. And what Jesus proclaimed to be is the, the, the living water and the bread of life. And when we come to him, we thirst and we thirst no more because we're finally drinking from the real thing, the real deal. When we eat the bread of life, we're satisfied to the deepest part of our body our soul, because now we're, we're going to the place where we're called to come. And as we come, he's saying, come and be free. And he's saying that this gospel, this good news, it's all free of charge, which allows us to receive life as it is, as it is a gift and undeserved, unearned, unpurchased, unentitled, life-giving bread of life of Jesus. That's what we're called to. Jesus stepped in to the trading floor of entitlement, and he's made a proclamation to all of us. The jig is up. It's all free. All right. I've got some reflective questions. Did, uh, if you don't, if you want the reflective questions, they were on the back counter back there. If you want them, raise your hand. Um, like I've said before, these are just things for you to think. Not all these questions may apply to you. If one of them does, praise God. Deal, you know, God wants you to deal with that. And so just raise your hand and the boys, they've got them. Just keep, keep them up real high and we'll start to go through them. You'll have them with you. Okay, so first one, first question. What entitlement or rights are you hanging on to that are keeping you from giving grace and forgiveness? Right of angerness, bitterness, Resentment, pound of flesh, whatever. How has Jesus written himself into the script of your life to give you freedom from entitlement? Which of the three dangers of entitlement have control over your life? Distorted perception, impaired ability to receive gifts, turned you against the world and against the ones you love. And finally, how can you make full use of your rights in the gospel? You have rights in the gospel. How do you make full use of them? Our Father, we thank you today that um, you've set us free from, our, from the sin of entitlement and our rights. You've given us a new perspective. You've given us the ability to step into something that's far greater than ourselves. You've given us the ability to receive these gifts and then to be 
dispensers of the same gifts. And so we just simply ask that your spirit would speak to our hearts and help us to understand what it is you're calling us away from and what you're calling us into. And then we would step into it in full obedience and follow you no matter what it feels like, no matter what it looks like, we know we can trust you to lead us in the path of righteousness. And so lead on, Lord Jesus, lead on.